Welcome to another episode of the Man Cave Chronicles. Welcome to the party, pal. You're my boy, Blue. Yo, Adrian. I A podcast with interviews of amazing guests from the world of pop culture. Oh, yeah. TV. Nice. Movies. Oh, I love the movies. Comedy and more from deep inside the Man Cave. Your host, Elias. Mariana, welcome to the cave. Great being here. Thanks for having me, Elias. How are you? What's new with you? I'm good. I'm good. Living in these difficult times of ours. How are you dealing with that? Actually, you know, it's been, I think I've been more privileged than most of the sense that uh, I've been able to continue sort of doing my job, which is going out on the field and reporting, but doing it in a safe way. It sort of added an extra challenge to our show, a show that is already incredibly challenging, you know, getting access to these trafficking underworlds. Um, But I would say one thing that we found is that these actually black markets have sort of exploded during COVID time. And that's not something that I was expecting, Um, but we've seen it all around us. So yeah, you've you've been busy with with, uh, obviously the new show coming out December 2nd, uh, Trafficked. Uh, But before we start talking about that, I want to know a little bit more about you. Like uh, at what age did you know you wanted to be a journalist? (laughs) <laughs> when I was 12, so early, uh, 12 <laughs> years old, <laughs> I was, you know, I grew up very afraid of being stupid and dumb and not having knowledge. <laughs> and then I used, to, I don't know why that was like my fear, my, my biggest fear when I was a kid. And uh, I would always tell my parents, I don't want to grow up and be dumb. <laughs> I want to have a lot of knowledge. And then I used to watch the nightly news with my family every night, sitting down on them and with them and watching it. And Used to, I grew up in Portugal and used to see these Portuguese anchors just sort of knowing everything about the world. Of course, I had no idea they were reading from a teleprompter. I just thought they were the most knowledgeable humans on earth. And I decided, okay, I'm 12 years old and this is what I want to do. I want to become a journalist. And then, uh, yeah, went from there. Um, went to school in Portugal, did international relations there. Uh, again, with the idea of gaining knowledge um, about the world, and then uh, decided to start applying for Columbia University's journalism school because I knew I wanted to come to the U.S. and do journalism here. And it wasn't easy. I didn't get accepted the first year. I didn't get accepted the second year, even though I was put on a wait list. And the third year, I essentially flew to New York and I knocked on the dean's door and I told him, I want, you know, this is my dream to come to this school. And we sat down for an hour and that year I was accepted. And that was sort of the beginning of it all. You mentioned uh, you were born in Portugal, you know, and I, so I told you before we went out of the air, my wife was from Portugal. I got to know, like, did you grow up in that household or was like a little strict and everything? You're like, what was their reaction when you told them this is what you wanted to do? They were good. They were very proud. You know, they were, they were, no, I don't have a journalist in my family. My parents definitely aren't journalists. None of my closest relatives are journalists. Yeah. Um, so they were surprised. Um, but they were very, they've always been super supportive. Even when I do sort of the more dangerous uh, reporting that I tend to do um, and go to sort of the more dangerous areas of our world, uh, they've always been incredibly supportive and never, um, I guess I didn't grow up with them being very afraid of whatever I, they're not very cautious parents. Um, They're very loving parents. But they're not the kind of sort of umbrella parenting that's always that were always on top of me telling me not to do things. They would always tell me to do things. And so they were always very supportive. So now you have a new show, Traffic, premiering uh, December 2nd in that geo. How did you get the series rolling on that? How did you get the idea? 
I've been working with Nat Geo for a while now, and then I've been doing sort of reporting on the underworld for over 15 years for different channels and out, outlets. And one thing I started realizing is that, you know, we know so much about the formal economy, as we call it. You know, there's networks, there's magazines, there are entire organizations devoted, devoted to analyzing and studying every sort of twist and turn and up and down of the formal economy. And yet the informal economy makes up for almost half of the global economy. And I don't think most people know that. The drug trade alone brings in over $300 billion, which is insane. And, and so I thought, you know, this is, there's, there should be some, there should be a series um, sort of exploring, I think there's a need for a series to sort of explore these, these gray and black markets, these underworlds, um, and try to figure out why they exist, how they operate. You know, one thing I find is found is that they're so much more organized and there's really a system in place uh, that I wasn't expecting in these black markets. Um, and so there's so much we can learn from them as well. Um, so I, I think that was the initial idea of why I really wanted to do this show. Yeah, I watched the trailer. I mean, the trailer looks amazing. How did you decide like what you wanted to explore for the show for the trafficking? Like, how did you narrow down the list? Okay, like these are the five or six topics that you wanted to pick to explore. Yeah, all of what I'm very interested and sort of curious about for many years. Um, you know, we did one on steroids, and it's just something that has been fascinating me for a long time. You know, the sort of the, all the illegality and the illicit world behind steroids, and the fact that it's not being used just or used and bought and sold and injected uh, just in, in sort of you know, bodybuilders' gyms any longer. It's really super widespread and all around us. And I remember reading something about it and thinking, oh my God, I'm, I really think this would be an amazing show to have. And, um, so I, I think, you know, the same thing with fentanyl. That was another top, one, other, one of the topics that we've tackled on this show. And it was partly because of my history reporting on opiates, but seeing sort of what's happened with opiates and fentanyl um, here in the U.S. and wanting to really go to the source of where the fentanyl is coming from, uh, how it's being made in labs, and who's bringing it across to the United States. So that was one of another topic. But um, all of them are issues sort of that I've been very passionate or curious about. So from the trailers that I saw that you're, you're interviewing traffickers, uh, how do you go about like networking with them? And, and how are you allowed to interview them? Like, how do you get them to trust you? It's not easy. I'd say it's the most challenging part of my job, for sure. Uh, you know, there's sort of months and sometimes even years of uh, trust building that goes in networking and, you know, getting to meet people and sources. I've been doing, you know, I've been working in these worlds for over 15 years, as I told you. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of hard work put into it. But then it's also once there's a lot of what I call the, the first, the underworld first dates, um, which are, you know, we arrive on location and we've established connection with these networks. Um, and, and then it's a matter of them trusting us and really believing that we're journalists and not law enforcement, because that's always their biggest fear. Um, so, you know, there's always a moment where they say, okay, fine but we want to meet usually it's either the team or just myself or just myself and the local journalist and um, and so we want to meet this person first and we want to you know make sure that they're in fact who they say they are so there's you know the, the first dates we get there they always are sort of very similar there's always uh, drinks involved 
they always ask for drinks and food and uh, and it's really sort of to spend time with us to get a sense again of who we really are and after that it's the moment where they decide if they want to let us into their world or not and i think one of the biggest reasons why they do is because um, I mean, first of all, we get a ton of no's, not all our yeses. That's very important to say. Um, but I think once we do get the yeses, uh, one of the biggest reasons is because um, I'm there to listen to them. I'm not, and I tell them from the start, you know, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to understand your world. Uh, I'm going to ask you tough questions because that's my world, my life, my, my job as a journalist. But I'm mostly here to understand your world. And I think they really, they, they respond to that interviewing them and networking with them have you ever been in a situation where you're, you're scared yes definitely um there have been moments where things have not exactly gone as, as planned i mean that's actually how it is usually um but there's a lot of pre-planning and security procedures and plans put into place before we even hit the ground um but yeah, I mean, there's moments where things just don't work the way you thought they would. You know, there was one moment, for example, we were doing a story about gun trafficking, um, American guns going to Mexico and how they're responsible for violence there. And we were entering Sinaloa territory with this uh, group of um, uh, uh, sicarios, gunmen, Sinaloa gunmen. And they're, you know, they're, they have their AK-47s and their handguns and we're entering the territory. And they told us, you know, when, while you're here, you're safe. You're with us, you're protected. But uh, if the Marines show up, you know, the feared Mexican Marines, if they show up, then there's nothing we can do to protect you guys because then we're going to have to, you know, fight back. And uh, you're going to just be sort of stuck in the middle. And we decided anyway, we would go. We spent a couple of hours with them. And uh, as we're interviewing one of them, we start hearing the walkie talkies just start buzzing like crazy. We knew something was up and they turned to us and said they were said they were freaked out. And they said, time to go, time to go, they're here. And there was a helicopter marine, a marine helicopter coming towards us. And uh, we had to run out of there and try to figure out what do we do? Do we sort of follow them out of here and look suspicious? Do we wait here and try to hide and look even more suspicious? So it was one of those moments and we filmed it all. Because one of the things about this series that I think is different from others is that we also show the failures and the things, what happens when, you know, when things don't go as planned and when moments like this, the sort of uh, holy, holy, uh, am I allowed to say shit? Yeah, that's <laughs> the, holy shit <laughs> the holy shit moments. Um, the holy shit moments. We film all of that. So in that episode, you see what happens then when you have a helicopter coming towards us and these guys ready to fight back and we're sort of stuck in the middle. Wow. Now you mentioned Mexico, like what other countries did you film this? And how long did it take you to film the whole documentary? So it's eight, it's eight episodes and it took us about uh, eight, nine to 10 months wow. to film them, to film the whole series. And what, what countries did you uh, film this in? Uh, Mexico, Peru, Colombia, Jamaica, uh, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, um, wow. not Cambodia, sorry, Laos. Uh, we actually didn't go to Cambodia, we're supposed to. Um, Israel, um, I mean, all around the world. Um, a bunch of the filming was done here in the US, uh, where I realized actually how much more prevalent and widespread black markets are. Um, you know, we filmed a lot of scenes just a couple of miles from my house in LA, and I couldn't believe it. How do you how do how do you decide what to air, what not to air after you collect everything? Uh, well, it's storytelling, you know. Ultimately, none of this is 
matters. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter, but I would say that ultimately what we want is for people to watch, right? As, as yeah. documentary filmmakers, you want people to watch it. So, uh, you know, it's, you have on one hand, the really challenging part of getting access into these worlds. And then I would say the even sort of more uh, grueling part is when we come back with all this incredible footage and have to figure out a way to put it together and lose, you know, lose, lose our babies, as we call them. Uh, lose moments that we think are, you know, so great and impactful, and yet we have to lose them because we have to, at the end of the day, make an hour of television. Um, but it's all down to storytelling, and it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's the, the, it's the grueling part of the process for sure. And now you're also launching a, a podcast for this, also. We are. I'm so excited. Yeah. It's my yeah. first sort of venture into podcast world. Yeah, I'll need some tips that. from you. Sure. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. It's, uh, you know, we do uh, once a week, uh, uh, we interview, um, for each episode, we interview a trafficker, a former trafficker and their rise and fall. We hear the story of a trafficker uh, and sort of a black market operator, their rise and fall. And uh, we've had the opportunity to talk to, or I've had the opportunity to talk to Heidi Fleiss, the former madam, for example, uh, to uh, Struggle Jennings, who's a former, former opiate dealer and nowadays a very well-known rap uh, country musician, um, the, son, the, the grandson of Waylon Jennings. And uh, and a bunch of other people, and it's uh, you know we a cocaine cow, former cocaine cowboy, and all these people that have incredible life stories, um, and you know through the podcast we're trying to get people to listen to these adventure crazy life stories, but also to put themselves a little bit in their shoes and understand uh, what it's like to be them, um, the good and the bad. After the series ends on Nat Geo, are you going to continue on with the podcast? Is that the plan? Uh, the series will never end on that geo. <laughs> oh, it's not okay. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm I, thought, I, thought, I thought it was just okay. That's that's even better then. Yeah. I uh, know we're uh, we're actually shooting season two, uh, even though season one hasn't started airing yet. Uh, we're already se- shooting season two. We're hoping we'll get a season three, four, five, six. That's, more. that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, the idea is to continue with the podcast. Uh, initially, the idea was just to have a handful of podcast episodes, and now. We're really having fun doing them. So I hope we can continue. Uh, really quick, tell the listeners where they can watch it at what time and uh, how can they find yeah. you? How, how they can find you on social media. For sure. So you can find me on social media, uh, on social, actually Instagram, which is my favorite, but also Facebook, Mariana Vizi. Um, so that's easy, Mariana Vizi. And uh, you can watch the show on National Geographic, on the National Geographic channel every Wednesday at, 10, at 9, 8 central. I was going to almost uh, get that wrong there. <laughs> but 9, 8 central and nine, on uh, Wednesdays. I'm super excited. Mariana, this was fun. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Elias. Really appreciate it. That's a wrap. That's a wrap, everybody. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening to the Man Cave Chronicles podcast. I finally get my man cave. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the MCC Podcast. And our website, the MCCPodcast.com. Until next time. Until next time.